As James said, my name is Laurie Benton, and I have a media consultancy, and we specialize helping particularly North American companies uh, expand around the world because it's been my experience that most North American companies don't understand how to do business around the world. Uh, but also to help them just generally navigate a much changed media landscape. To give you a little bit more color in my background, um, I have had the, the honor and the privilege of working with journalists for the majority of my career. My work life began at CNN uh, in the early days. It was when uh, the television spectrum was opening up in the US and there were lots of cable networks being launched. And a lot of people at that time used to refer to CNN as the chicken noodle network. They would ask me outright, Lori, why would we possibly need news 24 hours a day? <laughs> um, and so no one really knew it then, but CNN was actually one of the original disruptors to the news industry, uh, and its effects are still felt today. It was the original 24-hour news cycle, CNN. So from the very first uh, beginnings of my career, it's been about the change in the news world. I then went to work for Time Warner and Bloomberg. Uh, uh, I was the European publisher of Time magazine, uh, and then the European publisher, Europe, Middle East, Africa publisher for Bloomberg Business Week. Both of these news organizations were in the thick of all the changes that are happening um, in technology and how it's affecting their businesses. I'm not a writer, I'm, uh, but it was my role to make sure that the writers got paid. And um, it, they appreciated it, and I enjoyed it immensely. So, uh, I first heard rumblings about the death of the News Weekly in 1989, about seven days after I started my job at Time Magazine. So I was happy that that prophecy didn't end my career immediately. Uh, but it is true that the news industry and the music industries were the poster children of digital disruption. This is not new to us. This has been since the early 90s. So it's probably fair to say that I've spent the, the majority of my career facing this issue. But I should say I never believed it, and I still don't. I'm a big believer in um, the industry and even still in the printed product. So the title of today's seminar is New Publishing Models for a Modern World. But I'm going to spend a fair amount of time talking about the past because I think it's important to understand it when you're looking to the future. I'll start off talking a little bit about how we got into this mess, um, take a look at the forces that were in play that shaped the decisions of the past. I, I really believe you need to understand how we got there to help shape your, how you move forward in the future. So the media industry operated for the past 50 years on some pretty basic assumptions. Um, I call them the media rules of the past. When the media and advertising business really came of age, it was the era of madmen, uh, and it was a much different world than today. So what I'm going to do is explore some of the conditions that existed then. And the number one rule of the past was that big is best. It was really born from the basic economic principle of supply and demand. Uh, big was best at any cost. And partly because it was in the 1950s and 60s that the advertising business really began to explode. And it was really driving a new era, era of consumption. There were all kinds of new brands coming into the market. The economy was uh, post-war. The economy was booming. Uh, there was a whole population base just hungry for new things. So, and at that time, media companies were really the primary place that any large audience 
would aggregate on a consistent basis. So that was the choice for advertisers to go to. If they needed to speak to a lot of people consistently, the media was the, really, the, the main option. In the US at that time, there were only three television networks. In the UK, two. And in many of the countries around this table, one, maybe none. Um, so there weren't a lot of options. And that created the supply and demand. The advertising machine needed to be fed. So the media thrived. So that brings me to rule of the past number two, advertising rules. Uh, the advertising marketplace has exploded, as I said, and it flooded the market with money. It was really almost this frantic effort to be the biggest, the biggest magazine, the biggest newscast. Um, and because of that, in this idea that I need to be big at any cost, they were willing to de-emphasize circulation. Audience was king. Circulation can become a lost leader to advertising. And that, that's when that started. Yet, despite that happening, for many years, it was still a 50-50 proposition between circulation and advertising. It was balanced. But the pressure was really on, because then there was this explosion of magazines, hundreds of thousands of magazines. Uh, and as there became more and more magazines, publishers had to start to compete to maintain those large audience bases. So they began to offer cut price subscriptions. And they also hired, and I, as I said, I came from Time, Inc. Um, they hired a lot of really, really smart people. And those really, really smart people built a lot of models, scientific models that could predict circulations at any given price point. So on any given day, they could literally decide how big their circulations are going to be. Uh, which leads us to rule number three. Advertisers reward large audience. This is a fact that made me crazy for, for much of my career because I was launching new um, networks and things. Um, and so they weren't large in the beginning. But before the internet, it was actually relatively difficult to find large audiences for your advertising message. And the prevailing wisdom was for advertising to have an impact, you had to hit a large audience all at once. Particularly if you were launching a new product or a new movie was coming out, that they felt that they had to have everybody see it at once. So the app, this created a condition where the advertisers had to actually compete to buy space or time on the biggest media. And the biggest media would actually sell out because of that. So that put this upward price pressure uh, in a bidding war almost on the biggest media properties. So that drove up rates for the largest audiences. And that meant that the media that was big was rewarded exponentially. So the profits of media companies at this time soared and feeding the drive for biggest bets uh, more and more. Rule number four. This one, I'm surprised nobody really talks about this a lot. But I think one of the biggest things that has hit media companies is the fact that they're, they're now often publicly traded entities with very large shareholder bases. I've been lucky because I've worked for privately held companies and publicly traded companies. And in my experience, the, the motivations are completely different. Uh, because of the pressure to uh, always um, feed the shareholder base. So it was in about the 1960s that media companies began to be traded on the public exchanges. And it really fundamentally changed their original mission. At the end of the day, the number one client was the shareholder. They would never admit it, but they would say it was the reader or the, the viewer. But the ultimate 
customer of a publicly traded media company is the shareholder. And print is still profitable. Even today, in the, in the, the companies that sound like they're in the most trouble, it's not generally that they're not making money. They're just not making as much money or growing the money every year. So if profits are not growing, that's a big problem for a publicly traded company, particularly in the US. And what happens in the US in media affects a lot of what happens around the world in media. So Wall Street and the city began to reward any company that could call itself digital. And if you could be considered digital, your valuations were much higher, your stock price went up. So resources within media companies were, were, were diverted to the digital cause, starving the core product. So rules of the past, number five, powerful editors and large infrastructures. These media companies throughout this, this period of growth became very, very large companies with very large infrastructures. There were very large print runs, large warehouses, large distribution networks that were necessary to deliver the millions of copies that they sent out each week. And editors became all powerful. That's a picture of, um, of uh, Meryl Streep in that movie, uh, The Devil Wears Prada. Um, they were responsible for curating information for audiences. Editorial staffs were huge, and they had very strong unions to support them. It was almost impossible to change someone's job description when the digital world um, opened up. So since I couldn't get a print journalist to have to write for the website, we actually hired lots of inexpensive staff who could be digital, but that really, what that really, really meant is that media companies were not taking it seriously. It was a bit of um, ticking the box. A lot of the print uh, media just put their magazine up on the web, and that was it. And they thought, okay, I'm digital. And that was for many years of the attention that was paid to what was happening. So these large infrastructures meant that the companies lost their ability to react to the change that was to come. And I will tell you, frankly, that most didn't want to see the change that was coming. <laughs> it was going to upset the status quo because the media business was a really, really great business and nobody wanted anything to change that. So change was not welcome. So a little bit of putting the head in the sand and pretending that it would go away. There was also disdain for the idea of consumer-generated content. After all, I'm an editor, I will curate the news. So it was never discussed, it was a taboo topic. And, and most urgently during this time, they didn't see that they no longer held exclusive access to large audiences. So what I call the digital tsunami hit. Unbelievable, some people in the industry thought the internet was just going to be a passing fad. Uh, Google, what a funny sounding thing, and it's search engine, that's like the yellow pages. Um, it had nothing to do with what media companies do. And Facebook, it was a directory of college kids. And Twitter, you can imagine what they thought of Twitter and tweeting and this bluebird. So they didn't really understand or pay much attention to these enormous, uh, these companies when they started. But they were platforms, right? And in a really short amount of time, they garnered huge user bases by offering services for free. And it would be years before they began to turn themselves into content media companies, so they weren't even considered a threat. 
And look at it today. You've got Twitter, 236 million users. Facebook, 144 billion. Google, 3.5 billion searches every single day. But they didn't think they were media companies. But what is unique about this company, these companies is that they were born by offering functionality at no cost. What an interesting new way to build an audience at a massive, massive scale. And now they sit on the same digital platform as the largest media companies in the world. The distinction between media and these platforms is beginning to melt away. So what happened? Publishers woke up one day and realized that they were really in trouble. And you know what they did? They panicked. Magazine subscription marketing became a race to the bottom. Remember, big at any cost. And subscribers became conditioned to cheaper and cheaper offers and free internet content. So publishers had undervalued and underpriced their product to subscribers, and they lost the relationship between value and price. When digital revenues failed to make up for the shortfall, there used to be a saying, um, uh, digital pennies couldn't replace analog dollars. Profits had to be found through cutbacks, because remember, the shareholders were not going to allow profits to go down. They would be punished. So they cut budgets for production, they cut budgets for editorial, they cut budgets for sales, or suffer the wrath of the markets and the shareholders. And because the only place that they could claim growth was occurring in digital, the resources rushed to the digital side of the business at the expense of the core business. Because mind you, there wasn't more money to spend. It was just being spent differently. Yet 10 years later, digital revenues are still only 20% of legacy media companies' turnover today. And the physical product of many magazines no longer warrant high subscription prices because they've, they've reduced the paper stock, they've lowered the page counts, they don't buy photography. So 80% of their business is still in the mothership, 20% is in digital, yet they've starved their mothership. And, and we don't expect to see the, the revenues on the digital side take over for another 10 years. So there's, there's a, a, a good set of time that this has to be dealt with. So, what is the world today for a legacy print brand? And where does print fit in a digital world where news is instant and undervalued? Or what is the new paradigm? I'll start with big is not always best in a world where digital impressions are delivered one by one. And there's an infinite supply for advertisers. Digital is now mass consumer access. It's not unique anymore. Print is now premium. The two platforms have switched places. Building a business for this new reality is a rare opportunity, and the lucky ones are those who can start again with a big brand name. Or they have bold management or strong boards. Those are even rarer. But I'm a big believer in print still because it is still unique in its ability to add prestige and influence to a media business. And it will, be it will continue to be critical to a media brand's success. What's happening, what's beginning to unfold, is the idea that being able to read or own the physical product is a luxury. 
To read in print is turning into a luxury. I don't have to read it for, print, for free online. I have the, part, the physical product. So I, was, I thought I would highlight this, and I will admit this is extreme, but I wanted to show you a quick clip from a popular show here in the UK, which I suspect none of you watch, or if you do, you won't admit it. Um, here, it's a, it's a show called Made in Chelsea, and there's a, there's a very, very posh man named Mark Francis. So he's going to discuss uh, what he thinks of reading on paper versus digital devices um, here. So um, as Mark Francis said, um, I actually believe with him in, uh, to some degree, I believe that reading will be a badge of affluence. I believe it's a status symbol that I'll be able to read the printed version of magazines in the future. And I think we'll start to see that be. So today was billed as a case study of a brand that uh, has gone back to the drawing board to reinvent itself. So now I'm going to talk to you about the new Newsweek. And I brought uh, a bunch of copies, uh, a, a big selection of copies, which feel free to, to grab some when you leave. Um, you're welcome to them. Um, I don't want to carry them back to London, so please do. Uh, Newsweek is an 80-year-old brand. It rose to become one of the most powerful and influential news brands in the world. I'm sure everyone has heard of Newsweek in this room. Uh, probably some of you grew up reading it. Uh, it was owned by the Washington Post, which is a grand old media company, and it did not fare well in the chaos of the digital tsunami. The economic downturn of 2008-2009 really put the nail in the coffin for it. So there was a fire sale. And the brand was bought by a very wealthy American who owned a chain of electronic stores, of all things. Uh, he bought it almost out of civic duty to keep the brand alive. This is a true story. Uh, he soon partnered with Barry Diller and Tina Brown of IAC Interactive Corp. And they were, IAC being a digital-only enterprise, they quickly merged it with the Daily Beast to give it some digital credibility. Uh, and very shortly thereafter, it was on life support. <laughs> in 2013, IBT Media, owned by two young entrepreneurs with a business news site, IBT Times, purchased the nameplate. The plan, in their mind, was that it was going to be a digital-only play, which that was the prevailing wisdom of the day. Company, digital. But it didn't take long for the new owners to realize that their investment in editorial and the new printing technologies available meant that there was still a physical print opportunity. And given the strength of the brand, it made one worthwhile. So, also very important, given that they were relaunching from scratch, they had nowhere to go but up. It was growth by definition. So, what's different uh, in the new Newsweek? First, print. It's a weekly event print, and the magazine <coughs> is what drives the brand reputation, prestige, and influence. It's a chance for in-depth editorial that reads more like a monthly magazine. It might be called Newsweek, but it reads like a monthly. Don't make a mistake on this. Print has not lost its unique ability to drive anticipation for what a news brand chooses to say with its limited space. What, what do they choose to say this week? And there's nothing like print to garner attention for a brand. You see it every time some pundit holds up the cover of a magazine on a news show to talk about it. I will give you an exercise. Uh, ask yourself, everyone in this room, ask yourself right now, 
Would you rather be on the cover of Time Magazine or on the homepage of Time.com? So, okay, digital. Digital now is the large brand footprint and it provides real-time content. So it kind of does more of what that weekly, let me tell you what is happening, that Newsweek originally was. That can be done digitally now and should be done digitally now. But digital drafts off the brand reputation of print. Digital is a place where anyone can access the brand and thus drives a large footprint. The editorial is designed or repurposed for the digital platform, including a place for Newsweek to present breaking news, which gives readers and users a daily habit. So what Newsweek has done also is take their content and monetize it across all available platforms, including in the real world with events. It repurposes content into formats such as books and newsletters. And now even, they've got a recent partnership with a leading Hollywood production company who will be taking Newsweek's reporting as a source of feature-length films. So if it's a good story, it's going to be a movie now. And rather than striving to take over the world on their own and build that huge footprint in every country around the world, as the model was in the past, they look to keep the brand relevant in local markets through partnerships. So now you can find Newsweek in Mexico and other countries in Latin America. There's Newsweek Japan, there's Newsweek Korea, Newsweek Pakistan, Newsweek Middle East, which is the GCC countries launches in June, uh, Newsweek Poland, Newsweek Serbia, uh, and Newsweek Czech Republic will be out later this year, and some new partners to be announced shortly. That was a big change for a, a news brand to actually do partners in local markets as opposed to try to actually do it on your own. That's not a, a sustainable market uh, or business model for them anymore. And I believe most importantly, this time the print delivers value for that premium price. Never forget the consumer will always pay for what they value. Print is not just media, it's a physical consumer product and it must convey value for money. And it must pay for itself. The new Newsweek is News, News Lux, designed for a premium audience that still values the luxury of reading in print. It fulfills its promise with a beautiful design, photography, content that is more evergreen than the Newsweeklies of the past. It, it's a title you can be proud to be seen with, proud to see, be seen reading, and to have on your table. And by delivering value for money, they can build a strong business. A basic rule of commerce is you don't sell for less than it costs. So Newsweek no longer sells for just cents a copy as a subscriber, as a loss leader for advertising. And on Newsweek, it's a, our newsstands, it sells for $8 a copy. Its subscription cost is as much as seven times what it was in 2012. This much smaller scale is intentional. And it gives Newsweek a chance to make money again with a boutique business model, primarily based on circulation dollars as opposed to advertising. So circulation is nowhere near where it was at its peak, which was three million in the Mad Men days. But it's now right-sized for its place in the platform mix of the Newsweek brand. Because that's what brands are now, platform mixes. And in what I think is a very brave move, Newsweek is not afraid to cost more than anybody else. They've really set themselves apart that way. While others maintain their size at any cost, Newsweek no longer measures success on print circulation, 
but on total success of the enterprise. You can see from this chart the other legacy brands continue to sell the print product cheaply. Newsweek is now priced comparable to The Economist, which was always the premium news brand, and is priced at three or four times the price of Time, its former competitor. Three, three or four times. You mean as a subscription price? Yes, yes. as a subscription price, yes. The digital strategy is designed to build that large brand footprint, but also designed to migrate users to paid subscribers. The digital product provides critical mass and universal <coughs> access to Newsweek, with the first five articles each month are free. This is key to the future because in time, consumers are becoming more and more willing to pay for the content that they value. That's the key word, if they value it, even online. You can look at the growth of paid television streaming services. I don't know how many of you have Netflix. Yep. Almost half of viewing now is done on paid uh, streaming services, disrupting the traditional television business. It's basically TV's turn next. And it's working. In September 2014, Newsweek announced it was profitable for the first time in 10 years. So what does success look like? So we're going to take a look at the outcomes for revenue, editorial, production, audience, and advertising. Revenues. It's a circulation-driven strategy. So the magazine is now profitable if every copy of this magazine actually pays for itself. And the advertising is following. Revenues increased fourfold, and advertising is now one-third of revenues. That's a big switch from the days when it was about 80% of revenues. Sorry, Advertising is now about one-third of total revenues from about 80% of revenues in the, in the old Newsweek, yeah. exactly, before the collapse. What is also different is the makeup of the editorial operation. The current newsroom headcount is about 50, down from several hundred during the so-called glory days. This lean editorial staff is supplemented by the use of outside contributors overseen by Newsweek editors. And they're nimble and lean, and their job descriptions entail all platforms, not just magazine or being assigned to digital or being assigned to mobile. The editorial product is focused on quality journalism that can be re-monetized in various formats, even video. But the team is led by a very respected, respected veteran, Jim Impoco, and he brings his journalistic gravitas from his years at titles such as New York Times, Fortune, US News, and Reuters. So don't be mistaken about the heart of quality journalism. It's still there. It's a different um, work environment. And critically, each platform is curated and presented in a format for that platform. So the tone and the language are unique between digital and print. This success is because of the focus on delivering fair value for a fair price. The production quality sets it apart and creates a luxury news magazine something you might even keep on your coffee table. Heavy stock, perfect bound, beautiful photography, and a flavor magazine. I did want to bring a copy of, of Time this week, and I didn't get a chance to grab one, but you'll find Time is on very thin paper stock. It's got a saddle stitch, and it is usually about 45, 50 pages.
The brand has been rebuilt and it's got a strong and growing digital footprint with more than 6 million uniques each month and circulation now at 500,000. And more soon because music is about to enhance its digital experience with new apps in the coming quarter. This natural audience, rather than one that's padded with price-sensitive readers, has resulted in a better overall audience demographic, which is critical to advertising success. So now, with a more affluent and educated audience base than before, Newsweek is attractive once again to advertisers. You can see from this chart that the household income of 110K plus has grown 40% since the takeover. And it pays off high-profile advertising that helps support a quality image. The advertising categories drawn to this audience are premium and less reactive to swings in the economy and have a more resilient history of ad spend. So what did Newsweek learn from all this? What are the lessons learned? First, don't be big for the sake of it. The largest circulation is no longer a selling point in a world where digital impressions are delivered one at a time. Magazines will begin to become right-sized with a core of passionate and committed subscribers who renew strongly and will once again pay an economically viable subscription price. Circulations won't be in millions, but several hundred thousands. The focus will be to put the printed copy in the hands that matter, the hands that will help build influence and prestige. Lesson number two, be digital first with a nimble organization. The era of change is not yet over, so large infrastructures will be a handicap. New lessons and ways of working need to be embraced. It's, it's by no means over. Charge a premium for the printed version. Digital is now the mass product. Print is for the elite. And provi provide a premium physical product. Heavy stock, perfect bound, bigger page counts. Never forget to give value for money. So produce quality editorial, not a repeat of the news, but set the agenda. <coughs> this is what they hold up and talk about, so they have the ability to set the agenda with what they choose to say every week. Let each platform do, do what it does best. And last but not least, grow globally through local partners. Leverage that local partner expertise and knowledge of the market to expand the brand presence without costly global distribution. So what I'd like to do is close this portion um, before we go to Q&A by sharing just some general observations and thoughts on the industry as a whole. Um, first is, everything is media today. Everything. Amazon.com reaches 121 million people with the click of a button. And you notice that's how they launched Amazon Prime. They got into the media business. They said, I already have you coming to my site. I already have your email address, I have your billing information now, would you like to watch a movie? Boom. Uh, HBO didn't see that coming. Many retail sites reach more than most media companies. Walmart reaches more media companies for advertising for a tied detergent than any of the broadcast networks could for them. You are media today, by the way, through your use of social media such as Facebook. Believe me, Mark Zuckerberg is monetizing you right now. You are media. And should you choose to do a blog or any other kind of activity, Instagram, etc., you are media. So widen your view of what it means to be media today. 
Secondly, media properties can no longer be defined by their original platforms. They are brands. CNN used to be TV and digital. Time used to be print and digital. Now they are both simply global news brands. It is critical that you keep an agnostic view as to what your brand is and become a student of change. Thirdly, new platforms won't kill the old and they should be embraced. They should not be feared. It's surprising in my experience how afraid media companies are every time there's a new bit of technology. Remember, TV didn't kill the radio and be willing to adapt to new ideas. You need to speak to your audience wherever they are and in a way they want, in the way they want, because at the end of the day now, the big change the internet has met, meant for the world is consumers are now in charge. A good example is Snapchat Discover. Um, has anybody seen this yet? Yeah, I was trying to figure out how to just show it, but I, I couldn't get it up there. But um, do take a look at it and look at two things. One is what Sky News does. What Sky News does is talks to a younger news consumer in, in an entirely different way. It's still their brand, but for that platform, it's an entirely different way. Um, and then what also happens on Snapchat Discover is user-generated content. So they actually have their users hold their camera up, and then they curate from that content and create live news feeds around events. I watched... The Met, the Met Gala ball, red carpet, all through people on the red carpet holding up their phones on Snapchat. And it was actually really good. So do take a look at Snapchat Discover. This kind of thing is the future. It, it, it won't kill everything else, but it's another platform you need to know about. I believe that people, even young people, will continue to read books and longer form in print. Currently, 50% of books are, that young children read are still in hard copy. I also believe it's more of an access issue than a preference because digitally, mobily, you have it with you at all times. You can look at it wherever you are, whenever you want. But if you really had the chance to read Newsweek on your phone or Newsweek with this sitting in front of you at the same time, which would you rather spend time with? That's not going to go away. So it's really, in my mind, an access issue, not a preference issue. This next point is really, really important, particularly if any of you are thinking about starting businesses. <laughs> there is not enough ad money for everyone. <laughs> a lot of particularly digital companies start and they think, okay, I'll be free for now and eventually I'll add the advertising later. There is not enough advertising money for everyone. Do not build a company that relies solely on ad revenue, period. And never forget that value is defined by what somebody is willing to pay. So you need to ask yourself, are you providing something of value? If they're not willing to pay, you are not. The lucky brands, I think, are the ones that are given the chance to rise from the ashes. They include Forbes, Businessweek, Newsweek. Their early demise was actually probably a lucky thing that happened to them because they were the first to be actually be able to rebuild. I think you'll see more legacy brands that will fall further before they can build again because they need to be given an opportunity to jettison the former culture and the former <coughs> job structure and infrastructure, which is a very difficult thing to do, uh, particularly in a publicly traded company. Much has changed and much has not. I'm a big believer that the, uh, we live in a cyclical world. Um, I'm going to read you a paragraph that comes directly from the original prospectus of Time magazine in 1922. 
Henry Luce believed that Time served a purpose, and his initial reasoning for Time magazine was, people are uninformed because no publication has adapted itself to the time which men are able to spend simply keeping informed. A few things wrong. He thinks of only men. Um, but basically what he's saying is, because nobody figured out that people don't have a lot of time to read the news, so he put it all in one place. Um, it's about understanding your consumers' wants and needs and, and serving them. Uh, I think these words still fit today. So I, my point on this is for journalism to, to survive, you must remain in service to your readers. And I think I will sum this part up with a, a, another quote from Confucius. Um, Newsweek got to be brave and was lucky to have a powerful brand and a clean slate with which to rebuild. Uh, learning from the past, embracing the future, I think it's poised for another 80 years. And if you do not change the direction in which you are going, you will end up where you are headed. Um, so, so that's it for this. Um, thank you.